I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to episode four of Making Art. Now, I know at the end of the last episode I said that this fortnight I'd be presenting an episode on cultural value. And there are a million excuses as to why that's not happening, but I've decided instead to just come clean and tell the truth. The dog ate my homework. (coughs) Down boy. Instead, I sat down in the studio of the visual artist, Hannah Bertram. Internationally recognised, Hannah has devoted the past 15 years of her career to working with that most ubiquitous of materials, dust. And over that time, she's had over 15 solo shows across the world, including at the Palais de Tokyo, or as the French refer to it, the site of contemporary creation, a famous space just up from the Eiffel Tower devoted to the display of contemporary art. She's also enjoyed shows in New York, Hong Kong, Norway, and undertaken numerous residencies in the US and in Europe, and found time to lecture in contemporary art at Deakin University. I met with Hannah in the Inner City Studio, a space she shares with the theatre designer, Jenny Hector, and she was elegantly dressed with shimmering red hair and made me a cup of tea and offered me one of my favourite chocolate digestive biscuits before she handed me a list of things she felt she'd like to talk about. So with the sun streaming in and the sound of trams rattling along Elizabeth Street, here's Hannah Bertram on the subject of lists, poetry and the discipline of making art. You've done a very lovely list of things that you'd like to talk about. I like a good list. A list is very important. Why are lists important? Well, that's how you get stuff done. Um, But I also collect them as well. What do you mean? Did you know I collect them? No, I collect lists. I think that they're these beautiful kind of little um, poems of just the ordinariness of our lives. You know, about what what we value, what we have to get done, what we're trying to do. You know, I just find them really interesting and curious. That's other people's lists, but my lists are always just a way to um well they're partly planning but I do them every single day and I I write all sorts of things on them and depending on my state of mind will depend on what's actually on the list some days I've literally got on there get up and have breakfast (laughs) and I've got a friend Louise who actually told me once that she does lists and she always puts the first thing on the list is something you've already done so you can tick it off but I don't do that. But anyway, so I've got a list there because it helped me group my thoughts and it's just a way of sometimes if you're getting a little bit lost that you can return to something and a way to keep the anxiety at bay when you're juggling a million different things. So if it's down on the list, you're less likely to fret about, oh, God, I've got to remember to do X, Y and Z. So... Do the lists form the kind of backbone of your process or is it, is it part, just a part of the process or is it the spine around which you kind of create work? No, because it's not really... It's, often it's the kind of practical thing, test this out, email someone, follow up on something. I guess it's like the backbone of just, you know, being a person in the world and trying to do things. 
And, and Although sometimes I write lists about work. It's Dif- part of the solid of discipline ideas. process, though, I guess. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Because, like, I've got this project that I'm working on at the moment, and I think I wrote a list of words for something that I was trying to think through. Um, where is it? Oh, no, that's all the notes in the rooms. Just trying to understand where I... Like, bringing it back to a core. And I don't know where the list is gone. Maybe it's gone. Oh, there, that's right. So the project is kind of... It's got the... It's, the title is Nowhere. And if you divide up the word nowhere, you've got now and here. So you've got both the present but also the, the absence. So then I've got a list underneath it and I've got absence and presence. Using material forms already here. Transforming. And then I've got honouring, responding to, highlighting, disguising what is already here or what could have been here or what is here. I've repeated myself there. Um, To set things apart, to incorporate. And then I've got to make ambiguous, to reveal, remember, discover, obscure, call forth, disappear, present and experience. So they're some of the things that I was thinking about as I'm trying to work out what that work work is. I I mean, I'm fascinated as, as to... Well, I'm fascinated by your work, but I'm fascinated as to how you arrived at dust as a medium. I hate that question. Do you? <laughs> Can I rephrase no, it in a you way know that'll make got, it easier? I've got a better answer for that question now because people used to ask me all the time, when did you get, why did you decide dust? And it feels like you're supposed to have some wonderful origin story or some sort of light bulb moment or some incident that got you to this unusual place but really all it was was um you know I started working with dust when I was in maybe like second or third year undergrad and it actually just came out of a process of being in the studio and playing with lots of materials and having things like that that list of words like I know at the time I was interested in fragility and the overlooked and these kind of very delicate and subtle things and so at some point and I don't even really quite remember when it was you think oh I'll I'll use dust and then it sort of worked with what I was doing maybe it was like another material that was dusty maybe it was like flour and spices and things like that I think it was and then not wanting to use those because they're um it's wasteful so yeah well, that's an interesting point you make about it being wasteful because mm. part of the work that you do is trying to acknowledge dust as being, which is thought of as a waste product, as being something much more than that in, in that it is everywhere, it is timeless, it is part of the cycle of life, the cycle yeah. of the planet. Yeah, I mean, I started using dust, actually I should say for a good, let's say about 10 years, I really was using dust primarily because it is a discarded, worthless material. And it sort of becomes the detritus, or it is the detritus of every matter in the world. So there's that, but yeah, when I was... um, when I was doing my PhD and I was reading a lot more about dust, you come across all these unusual things that you 
that I didn't know but seemed to sort of still belong in the practice and expand the practice. So things like um, that even though when we think about this worthless material, I mean, you can, you know, you can wipe this bit of the desk there and you've got the residue of dust. I've got the residue of dust on my finger and it feels like it's gone from, from that place there, like where that line has been drawn through the dust on the table. But dust is never gone. Like it's continually evolving in the world. It's continually being generated and migrating and moving and being reincorporated. So in some ways it's fleeting in that we can easily remove it, but it's it's up there with one of the most enduring materials. Like it comes from the beginning of time and long after we're done, it will continue, I think. I'm not a scientist, so... But poetically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, the planets were made from different kinds of dust and gases and, you know. I love the idea that... I, I, get, I kind of get this um, statistic wrong, but I think it's something like 100 tonnes of space dust falls on the Earth every day. So it's dust from, like, millions of stars that have burnt out millions of years ago and I don't know, whatever else is out there that is mingling with us and our shedded skin and our um, the fibres from our clothes and the wear and tear of the environment and all these other little bit of bits of things that are all constantly deteriorating. I could talk about dust for a very long time. We could spend the whole hour talking about dust if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it, I guess, that you that you are, you are exploring by using dust in what is, philosophically, what is it that you're exploring? Poetically, you've mentioned the word poetic. Poetically, what is it that you're, that you're, that you're attempting to explore? Well, I'm interested in it kind of perhaps, there being this kind of ambiguous notion of what is valued. Um, and, and also just sort of sometimes I think more so there becomes like an awareness of our own mortality, you know, our eventual kind of demise into this dusty remains somehow. And there's something kind of melancholic about that. So it's very strange when somebody says, what is it that you're trying to do with it? Because, you know, I can see from where I'm sitting my PhD dissertation over there and it's very fat and I wrote a lot about it and it it's sort of one of those things now where I think it's not it's still a curious material for me I think there's still things that I don't know about it about what I can do with it or what it does in the world Mm. and so there's kind of just a general um, fascination with it Mm. You mentioned again the word poetic and um, I know that you're interested in poetry. Poetry is, is a part of your process, is it? I guess I wonder where the ideas come from. Does it come from poetry? Does it come, I mean, it comes from everywhere. Does it, but poetry, I think, is a pretty important thing for you, is it not? Yeah, poetry is important. I don't know that it's... Um, there's not a direct link to the work that I make based on poems um, but 
more holistically in my life that's something that matters to me that it provides kind of <clears throat> you know <clears throat> writers often do that what I sort of think about the, the writers that speak to me are the ones that are able to name that which I know to be true but don't have the skills with that kind of language to articulate and so there's a, a comfort in that when somebody is able to articulate something that feels right or feels like you you know but you just you just couldn't express it in that way but I don't necessarily use poetry I don't think in as a kind of it's not, the work is not a response to poetry or anything like that. I think when I use the word poetic in terms of the visual works that I make, it's it's about that place of something sort of sensory and a bit um, what sensory and kind of ethereal, a little bit ungraspable, a bit of, a bit kind of felt unknown. It's sort of slightly away from the, f the facts, but is a kind of fact. I don't know. That's not a very good description of it, but yeah. No, that's, that's, that's actually good because what I'm getting the picture of is if you say that um, you love poetry because it give it, it's able to name the things or say the things that you're unable to. So yeah, that you feel it has a finger-placing ability. In some ways, your work... I just remembered I've got some poems. Sorry, I'm walking over to the other desk. <laughs> poems of yours or poems? No, of no, I, I don't write poetry. Oh God, that would be awful. Why would it be awful? Oh, because I'm not. I just don't have that skill. I don't. They would. They would seriously be awful, naive, sentimental sort of stuff that you write when you're a teenager. Okay, so talking about poems, so um, one of my favourite ones is uh, Rosemary Dobson's Across the Frontier. I've torn it out of the book, which listeners can't see, and I had it pinned up um, over my desk for a long time, but I've realised that I've actually only got half of it, but it's okay because there's only a little bit. Hey, maybe you're better at reading this than me. I'm happy to read it for you if you'd like me to. Okay, so um, the bit that we're missing on the other page is... I can't read that bit. No, you can't read that bit, but I'll give that intro. So that bit is about um, the poem that exists can never compare to the poem that does not exist. And then maybe if you read just those two stanzas... Trembling, it crosses the frontier at dawn, from non-being to being, carrying a small banner, bearing a message, bringing news of the poem that does not exist, the pulses that pulses like a star, red and green, no colour, blazing white against whiteness. Listen to the universe. Those are the possibilities of order buzzing and humming. So what I love about that is this notion of when we're trying to make something, what ends up getting made isn't always that initial thing that exists in your mind. And the, the, the idea of a work never kind of unfolds um, as a perfect replica of what you thought it would be. And that's the great thing about 
a, a process because then you get surprised by what comes about and it um, it allows for the I like to allow for the work to reveal to me something about what it needs to become so when you sort of ask where do all those ideas come from I mean in some ways I think that that making work generates ideas for more work that's that's sort of the most common way like you're in your studio doing something or you've I've had it you know I've gone and um, had an exhibition and I'm doing the installation and while I'm working on it I'm thinking you know how I could move this out a little bit or here oh, here's a possibility of something that I could change and so then the next one that you make is kind of like a version of that that you're trying to move along that's that's primarily where ideas come from other ideas come to you randomly from different sources what that that poem is <laughs> saying though is is it not is that um, uh, it's about searching for something that's as yet unknown. Mm. Yes, one of my favourite phrases. <laughs> well, how do you go about searching for something that's unknown? So um, that's been particularly interesting for me in the last sort of um, four or five years during my PhD, and I ended up writing a chapter, which was my methodology, kind of talking about a different way that I was um, going about trying to find new work. And I came across this concept, like how do you go about searching for that which is unknown? And it's um, based on, it's called Mino's paradox. So I think uh, Mino was a Greek philosopher and he's he asked this of Socrates and Socrates said, well, you, you can't do that because if you if you know what it is, if, if there is something to know that you are searching for, then it is already known. And if you don't know, how can you search, you know, you can't actually find it kind of thing. But the, the crux of it is in the question, which is how do you go about doing that? How do you go about finding something that's unknown? It's not can you know that which is unknown? Mm. And so the how you go about finding it, I mean, <clears throat> I've got to have, have a few processes that have changed recently. And one of them is this notion of... Um, two ways to get lost so if you think about getting lost in um <clears throat> in a city say that you're unfamiliar with what you do when you find yourself not at the destination that you were hoping to arrive at is that you you cast around you become heightened and aware of the physical surroundings so you're looking for signs you're trying to make sense and meaning based on the stuff that is in the world and you're you're scrutinizing it and it then is sort of will hopefully tell you where to go um the other kind and of getting it's france they'll tell you where to go and no one's <laughs> yeah um the other kind of getting lost though is about uh getting lost in your interior world so the idea of like you know you're sitting down and you're waiting for something and maybe we don't do this enough at the moment because of our access to constant uh, information on our smartphones but you know I remember you used to catch the train and you kind of just be lulled into that daydream world so what gets lost then is the world is lost to you and you enter into a much bigger landscape of your interior world and I think those two approaches getting lost by being attentive to what is there and getting lost to being attentive to what is within you 
is a way of um, having a process where you can respond to a site rather than impose on a site what it is that you want to do. So I think of like practical things that I do to to investigate both of those ideas. So um, for example, the work that I made a couple of years ago now at La Trobe um, University of Art, where I was in the storeroom and I was, they said that you, you know, you can gather the dust from the storeroom to make this new installation. But when I went in there, I was like, God, there's all these paintings and they're just covered in dust. And I thought, well, I need to spend time here. I need to work out what's here. So how do I do that? So I gave myself the um, the chore of dusting every single picture in that archive in order that you're you're both doing something physical and in some ways you're you're giving your um, like your prefrontal cortex who wants to be in control of something you're giving them you're giving it something to do it goes we don't need to panic here i've got a job i'm dusting the frames but because it's not a difficult task it allows for loose associations to randomly occur in your brain like it allows for other things your brain to work in other ways so you're both trying to see what is there but trying to allow some process to occur I want to say naturally, but I mean, it's only partially naturally because you've generated or a false kind of situation for that natural well, thing to occur. you've made a decision to do it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. And the, with the Latrobe work, <coughs> the result was actually utterly nothing. Utterly surprising. Like, utterly surprising because what happened was I'm dusting thinking I still don't know what this work is going to be and then because every time I'd lift out a picture, I'd start going oh, I know this work, or not the work, but I know this artist. Like, it's either, you know, one of my lecturers or one of my peers or an Australian historic artist that I'm familiar with. And so I then wanted to look at these works, and I thought about that whole space as quite sort of sad, like all these, like a, a painting graveyard. Like, that's where they go to die. You know, they're stuck there. Nobody wants to put them on the wall. Nobody wants to lend them out to an institution or whatever. They're not getting seen. They're not doing the work that they need to do. And so I started looking at every picture, I guess, as a way of kind of reinvigorating that space. And I just put up my camera and photographed myself um, looking at every picture. And after I'd finished the entire aisle... I downloaded, you know, 450 or 600 photos or whatever it was, and um, I noticed that there was a single painting sticking out of every single photograph, and on the side of it was written the title of the artwork, so you could only see the back of all the artworks, and the title was called The Isle of the Dead. Hmm. And I, it was kind of a... Um, Oh, this incredible kind of crystal shard that comes out of it where you go, gosh, these images are the work, or at least it became one aspect of the work that I couldn't have ever anticipated that. And it was like I, I kind of had permission then to think about those paintings as as dead objects that were not being, were not having the life that they were intended to have. And it wasn't, it was okay that I saw them like that because the the aisle told me that that's how it saw itself. I've seen the work and 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 there are a lot of photos of you looking at those pictures mm. in a way that brings them back to life because when you're looking at them, they're doing what they're meant to do. Mm. So does that exactly. raise a question for you as to, you know, 
the, the whole idea of what art is. I mean, it, is it active or passive? Is it? I mean, if art is in a storeroom that no one sees, is it actually art? Is a question. Oh, I, I guess. feel like that ends up being one of those philosophical questions, like a tree fell in a tree, and if nobody heard it, did it fall, kind of thing. And I don't know. Maybe I think maybe I'm not so much interested in answering that, but in kind of playing with it a little bit or being curious about that being a possibility without didactically stating that that that's what I'm trying to do or that that art is this or isn't this or. <clears throat> but there's times where it sometimes feels like that. And for me, I guess, because I'm compelled to make something that is is experiential, like a lot of the temporary works, you only get to see them if you've turned up and you've gone to that site and they're there. And they don't get to kind of move around and be seen by people and so it's sort of I think I do value the experience of it being viewed yeah um, now when I did my first podcast I did it with Lewis Miller mm. and um, just coincidentally uh, we got to the, this point in, in the podcast and I said to Lewis it, because when I walked into his studio, music was playing, and when I mm. walked into your studio, music was playing, um, and it's it's become a bit of a thing now to go into the halfway break with ah oh, with a tune with a tune, yeah. So uh, you had you music my, playing, and yeah. My my um, writing celebration music. This is after you submitted your PhD. Well, actually, the whole way through the well, the last six months of writing. Um, I would, I'd work really hard all day and then I would reward myself with a song that I could dance around to and, and sing and um, I just, I would, I would just get some of like the most cheesiest inspirational music that I could and it made me very happy even though it's not, because I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I should disclose how bad my music was. Well, I guess it's up to you now to pick one. Like, do you want me to play Spandau Ballet's Gold? You are gold. Na 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 na. You got the power to know you're indestructible. Always Hannah Bertram morphing into Spandau Ballet with gold. Music that makes her smile and I have to admit makes me feel just a little nostalgic. You're listening to episode four, yes, episode four of Making Art. Making Art is released alongside a companion article about the featured artist written by me and published first in the Daily Review. The Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts news and opinion site and it's totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So, if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, I encourage you to get online and have a look. And while you're there, click on the menu and head to the support page. And please, consider a modest contribution 
that'll help us maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. Pay what you can, make a gold coin donation, and it will also help us cover the cost of making this podcast. You can also visit our website, www.makingart, for helpful links to things that have been mentioned in our conversation. And yes, we have a donate page too. So go crazy, give us all your money, and now I'll shut up on the cell and get back to my conversation with Hannah. After a short break where she attended to some emails regarding a student who wanted another extension on a project due three weeks ago, and a brief explanation of the piano shape that was taped to the floor, this time Hannah handed me not a list, but a poem. There's a poem that you've got here, um, which, do you mind if I read it? It's, it's by Hafiz, the sure. Sufi poet, the Persian Sufi poet. Um, the difference between a good artist and a great one is the novice will often lay down his tool or brush, then pick up an invisible club on the mines table and helplessly smash the easels and jade. Whereas the vintage man no longer hurts himself or anyone and keeps on sculpting light. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. I think it's something to aspire to. It's not that I feel like, you know, I can identify with both there. I think that we have a way in which we um, can become so self-critical and really sort of destructive to ourselves. You just get caught up in that. Or paralysed by it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but there's a sense, there's a way in which, you know, that kind of idea that we, we start destroying things, like, because of this sort of inability to... Um, Accept process? Except yeah, the maybe. Process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea, though, that we we also kind of go where it, when it says, "Whereas the vintage man no longer hurts himself or anyone and keeps on," like keeps on, like I think that that necessity to gather yourself up again mm. and go forward, you know, even when you don't know what that looks like, even when you're uncertain, even when you're paralysed with fear and self doubt and questioning everything that you've ever done like that necessity to just keep moving on is um i think well i don't even know if it's a necessity i think that we i think it's a way to keep going or just constantly turning up and being disciplined enough to keep turning up and to move beyond your own self-criticism sometimes and allow things not to work and to fail um, is really is really essential. And I think that I've also learnt, though, that I need to occasionally not keep fighting it, that you need to sometimes go... <clears throat> I could keep turning up and banging my head about... You know, banging my head against this work and it not working, or I could go and do something else and it might eventually click into place, you know. What do you think sits behind uh, that fear and paralysis? Well, I'm not suggesting for a minute that that's where you are, but is it is it a skewed or a kind of a self-perceived notion of what success is as an artist? Um, 
I think I'd probably separate out two different things there because there is one way in which I'm asking myself what what is what does it mean for me now what what does success look like for me because I think that for a long period of time you know I always had my five-year plans and I had you know lists of things that I was applying for and stages that you were trying to get to and I was fortunate that I was achieving all of those things but you also get into a bit of a cycle of you know back-to-back exhibitions and you know the the demand of um you know turning up and kind of making great work and and so and I think that that started to get a little bit a bit taxing and so now I'm starting to ask well where do I go next and what are the values that I hold that will allow me to determine what I see as having a successful life as an artist and they're not the same things that we might think that the exterior world views as being being successful and I don't I don't have that sorted out yet I don't know what those things are but it's a question I'm asking myself all the time at the moment like and I need to do that in order that when I when I have those experiences, when I arrive at something that you recognize that it. I recognize it, and I, you know, and I celebrate that, and I enjoy it, and that there's there's a satisfaction in it, and I don't want to miss those opportunities because I think we can get really um, caught up in the striving and the grind and the pressure and the sort of desperate circumstances that we're usually in as artists and I want to know that there's something that I love in it and at the moment it's mostly the joy of process and discovering new things but I'll you know I'll expand on that I feel like your question you asked sort of two parts of that was that about the I've forgotten the I said I was going to divide it into two and I've forgotten what that other thing was that can sometimes happen that can happen yeah and it uh, does happen often you've forgotten how it was divided into two and I've forgotten what the question was what the question was okay alright so I guess well maybe we come back to it from another direction yeah you 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 gave me a list of things that you wanted to talk about well it wasn't so much like here is my prescriptive list like you'll notice I didn't number them um, so they can be taken in any order. Yeah, they order. can be taken in any order. But it was just when I was thinking about, like, what what it's like to make work and, the, you know, the kind of um, things that I would be pre- prepared to reveal about and talk about, I kind of was thinking these things are important to me. Well, you've got written down here, morning pages, artist dates ah. and arty farties. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is how we have to disclose that we know each other. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so, but I mean, I know most yeah. of the people that I'm talking to, although uh, not all of them. Yeah. So our, um, you know, just for the listeners, um, you know, we we are part of a special group. I don't know that it's what special. Are we call- oh, it is special. It's well, so special. It is special to us. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I mean. Not we are special because of it, but it's special to us. Um, along with uh, Claudia Schneider, um, musician, songwriter, translator, and Greta Hector, a uh, young, witty, observant um, woman who's not really sure what she might do with her creativity. And... Um, it's a really this group for me at the moment is a really important part of my studio practice because of our the meetings that we have and the conversations that we have but um 
going through the the book The Artist's Way, which you know some of us had previously done before, it reminded me again the value of the morning pages. So the morning pages are um, three full length pages where you write stream of consciousness so you don't stop writing until you get to the end of the third page and I started doing that in my early 20s and I've done it on and off at different times often I do it if I'm kind of just a bit stuck in my head and I've got too many things whizzing around and sometimes just as a way of reflecting and I find that particular process is um it becomes important at different stages and at the moment it's really important for me because because you're having to write stream of consciousness you have a whole lot of crap in there that is like me writing about how I don't like the pen that I'm using today and I really need to go and buy a new pen um and then you know delves into um what about if I did this or what about if I did that and so different things arise that are there in my mind that I'm not always conscious of. So it's helping me pick up some threads from that. And I always kind of get to the end and feel kind of motivated to go out and do something. And I think it helps turn around kind of negative thinking where you kind of spiral into the, oh my God, I'm no good. I'm never going to be any good. I'm never going to have another show again. Like, you know, any of that kind of negative talk, I'm, I'm able to write through that so that I can get up and I can go to the studio again and I can do something. Was but you, I was going to say, you find it a di- you've got a different process for the morning pages now, haven't you? Like we all were doing the same kind of thing for a while, but you've got a new process. What's yours? Well, uh, I guess in in speaking to something that you were talking about, that how do you find um, something that you don't know you're looking for in a way? Um, yeah. And I feel that that idea of being present, uh, so that you are not. Um, one of the things about I find about being a working performer is that I spend quite a bit of my I can very easily spend quite a bit of my time in the wreckage of the future. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> where, which is that I'm ne- I'm no good. This will never work. Yeah, standing on the rubble of the past, looking towards the rubble of the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I personally use morning pages as a way of setting my day up in a present kind of a way so that because I believe that for me to enter to access the internal world is I need that stillness mm. and that and that and that presence mm. uh, in order to do that if I'm if my mind is in what I didn't do right yesterday and what I'm going to do wrong tomorrow yeah uh, I find it very hard to hear that voice yeah and it's such a quiet voice as well. Like I've noticed with mine, the amount of times that I write, I really want to write this book. Like, and and it turns up all the time and I still haven't started. Well, I know I have started writing it, you know, but it's, a, it's sort of a spin-off of the PhD and looking at Dustin Art and I'm, I have a desire to do it, but I, No, it just feels like another big impossible thing to add to the world of difficulty of being an artist and and making stuff. And I think, you know, because I never had that, um, because I was never a very good writer and I, you know, don't really know how to spell and I 
I kind of learned grammar by osmosis and you've, you've read one of my drafts and as you know, I just scatter um, commas like confetti. Um, but I think maybe I w- I'm almost too scared to say that I would actually enjoy the process of writing it. Why I'm, do you find that scary? Um, well, because having just come out of the PhD, oh, <laughs> just I just think how incredibly... That is the most difficult thing I've ever done, writing that, like 60,000 words, you know, day in, day out. Like, it took all my might and strength to do it. And yet I also know that there was... There were times that I enjoyed it. I, like, I kind of like being up at five o'clock in the morning and before my brain starts working, sitting down and, and writing and enjoying it. I think it's just I have, I have still the, um, the baggage of experience of other people reading my writing and sort of laughing about my bad smell, spelling and not being able to, you know, put things together and feeling like I'm not particularly articulate. So there's sort of a gap between the desire and the my skills to do so but one thing i've been thinking about or that keeps coming up in the morning pages is maybe i don't have to decide whether or not i can or can't do it or whether or not i'm good enough or not to do this what my role should be is let's just begin it and see where it goes isn't that yeah it's exactly the same as my art practice you know, and yet you, there is a, um, a confidence that I have in terms of making artwork that, and maybe that's just, um, you know, you've got a few years behind you of doing it and you, you know that you can kind of thing and you have a toolkit of ways of dealing with it and this is like a much vaster unknown Um and yet it's still kind of compelling. And I think the more I think about writing this book as another way to, for me to engage in dust, you know, I've been doing it in my practice, you know, for whatever, 15 years or something. But if I'm writing about dust, it's a, it just is still, it's still part of that. It's just another form. Why don't I do it? I should just do it, shouldn't I? <laughs> this is not intended as a therapy session. Not like I was studying it. I was like, oh my God, listen to yourself. Um, yeah. I think also, um, you know, some of, some of that kind of doubt ties into what we were talking about earlier about how do you go about searching for that which is unknown. So, you know, I had quite the life upheaval. My studio mate Jen refers to it as the country in Western year, you know, getting divorced, my adult daughter moving out my dog dying finishing the phd and then packing up the house and now i've been just i don't know squatting on couches in various places for the last however long since october um and desperately searching for what next you know you you finish a big body of work like that like it took me five years i think i had something like 15 solo exhibitions in that time you know, wrote a 60,000 word thesis and then you sort of get to the end and go, what do I do now? And I know I can do anything and I'm just trying to work out what that might be. And one of the things that I discovered recently after, um, you know, 
<laughs> like all sad artists, going and seeing a therapist that I refer to as the artist whisperer. Um, she constantly is trying to help me to understand myself through my work. And I sat down one day and had a look over the thesis and I came across that chapter, how do we go about searching for what is unknown? And I realised that I'd spent like six or eight months grasping at possibilities for the future. Do I do this? Do I do that? Should I go back to study? Should I move overseas? Should I give up art? What, what do I do? And in looking over my own writing, I realised that I had described an artistic process that I now needed to apply to rebuilding a life. And it's a lot scarier to do that with life than it is to do that with art. But it's useful. It's useful to think about allowing uncertainty to be um, a present and valuable thing. How do you deal with that uncertainty? Uh, and you Not say well. You, no, no, Some of us, I mean, it's the accepting of it. But so what's a typical week like for Hannah Bertram? Is there such a thing? <coughs> is there such a thing as a typical week? How do you make? Not really. It's all over the place. Particularly at the moment, I've had more periods in my life where it's been <coughs> it's been very very ordered and very disciplined. You know, I think I spent about eight years working at the bank, and I'd work there in the morning. I'd come to the studio. I'd have my lunch, have a nap, and then I'd work for another, you know, six hours or whatever. And my daughter would sometimes come in and you'd go home and you'd do family stuff and then you'd do maybe some art admin stuff. And, and that was what I did for a really long time. Um, I guess if we're talking, like, if we look at now, I'm, it's just, it is all over the place, my weeks. Like, I do my morning pages as regularly as I can, sort of most-ish days. Um, you know, I'm working on some new work at the moment. I'm I'm preparing for second semester of teaching. Um, no, it's just a, it's a mess at the moment. It's all over the place. There's no there's no structure to it all, and that's the first time in my career that I have had that. And sometimes that's good to allow the day to unfold. And other times I just find too much time on your hands is really detrimental. So I try and sort of invent structures, which is part of the list thing. You know, here's how you're going to do this. Um, that's not a very clear answer, that, is it? It's as clear as it needs to be. Yeah. I think that also there's a little bit at the moment, I mean, I've spent a lot of this last six months, like, partly just recovering from the PhD and partly trying to rebuild a life. So I spent a lot of time on realestate.com looking at apartments going, I really want an apartment. And, you know, and a lot of time, you know, applying for things overseas and other opportunities for the next kind of little bit. But You raise a really yeah. interesting point there, a practical uh, issue that, that confronts a lot of people in the creative world is, I mean, because work is uncertain, uh, there's no, mm -hmm. well, we don't have tenure, obviously. Yeah. Um, just the practicalities of getting a unit. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real mess. And look, I, I was, um, I was pretty lucky because for, um, you know, so for, for, for the most part of my career, my, 
husband worked full-time and I worked part-time and we um, did a really good job of like balancing having a kid and you know we it was good and now um sort of you know after that's over and you kind of go okay I'm I'm responsible for everything myself um I start to experience the uncertainty in a more acute kind of fashion and so I'm I am having to think about really um the longevity of things like how do I do the next 10 or 20 years like how do I stay in it and at the moment I mean it's kind of weird to be you know in your mid 40s and not have a home (laughs) it it sort of sounds a bit desperate but I'm not homeless because I I just you know I stay at my boyfriend's place and Mm -hmm. stay at my parents place and stay in the studio sometimes and you know, I'm just allowing myself to sit with that uncertainty. But um, and the same thing with with teaching. I mean, I love teaching. I find it deeply satisfying and engaging. And I love the. I'm a social person, so being having an opportunity to talk to students about art and what they're making, you know, I find that really exciting. Um, but it's so erratic. You know, you get a call a week or two before semester, and you know you get given whatever hours you get given and that can vary from you know nothing to 25 or whatever so there's no stability even in your part-time job if you if you're in you know the academic world which is why I got that job at the call center <laughs> and you you use the call center as a i think you called it studio b did you mm-hmm. not? and so you made artwork while you're in the Yeah, I always like the idea of if you've got to have a really crappy job, it's really good if you can find some way to help it benefit your practice other than just like, oh, it's allowing me to pay the bills. And so I was calling up people doing surveys and stuff. So you spend a lot of time just on hold and on, you know, dial tones and answering machines. So I started, I set myself up a little little project um, and it was just a little drawing project that I could do for the for the four hours that I'd turn up for my shift, um, you know, just on the back of kind of bureaucratic minutia that people send you, and um, that kind of sustained me because then rather than sort of going, oh gosh, it's three thirty and I've got to go to this horrible job that I loathe and detest, I started being able to say, oh, I've got to go to Studio B now because I've got four hours of drawing to do. And then, of course, I, I build it into a project because I think that, you know, I had sort of potential. I was like, well, this is sort of an interesting project now and I could sell these drawings at the equivalent rate as my minimum wage job. So if it's a four-hour drawing and it's four hours wage that I would want to get paid for that drawing. But that's actually gone by the wayside because I took some time off. But I, I think it's a good... I think it's a smart idea to find any other way to make work. And would that be something that you would offer up to uh, sort of an aspiring artist or someone who's absolutely. feeling... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just keeping yourself in that place of yeah. creativity. I mean, one of the um, young, uh, emerging artists that I mentor, um, Crystal, she, she got a job working in a cafe at a bakery and like where they where they make their own pastries and she's really interested in materials and process and things like that and started 
realizing that pastry was this really interesting material or dough was this interesting material that kind of resonated with some things from her practice and so now she started making these dough works and I think you've got to find any kind of gap and possibility for making stuff and we never really know what is going to be a trigger like that's getting back to that whole how do you know what you're looking for thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. But when you're in it and you're attentive, you know, and you start looking at, you know, at the dough or the bit of paper on your desk, which I'd sort of always hide partially under the keyboard because we weren't really supposed to be doing anything other than waiting for someone to answer the phone. Um, I quite like that it was a little bit sub- subversive as well, you know. <laughs> sort of like you're paying me to do this job and I'm good at it and I'm doing a good job and I'm doing everything that you ask but just quietly I'm more interested in making work so you're a gorilla artist as well <laughs> yes <laughs> that was making art episode four my thanks to Hannah Bertram for allowing me into her creative space Colom for saxophone quartet our theme music was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Pixel Shifter and technical production is by Ben Churchill at Sonic Playground and the show was produced by me, Neil Piggott. Hannah Bertram's work will feature at the Biennale of Australian Art in Ballarat in September of this year. And if you want to find out more about Hannah, her work and maybe buy one of her Studio B pictures, visit her website, hannahbertram.com. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be coming to you from somewhere I haven't decided yet because I'm going to make an attempt to take a leaf out of Hannah's book and search for that which is not known. Whatever and whoever will go up in two weeks. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at The Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com. As I left the studio, Hannah started playing music and as I was heading down the stairs, all I could hear was Bruce Springsteen with Oh Mary, Don't You Weep. See you in a fortnight. Well, if I could, I surely would stay